Hello, Ed. Welcome into another episode of the Esports Network podcast in partnership with Reuters. As always, I'm your host, Mitch Dreams, and today we are talking to Mike Sepso. And if you know esports, you know how excited I am right about now. Mike is a true esports pioneer. When you think of esports today, Mike's influence is all over the place. He was the co-founder and CEO of Major League Gaming, the first major push of esports into the Western world when he founded the company in 2002. MLG broke down a ton of doors for esports over a decade before being acquired by Activision Blizzard. Mike then moved over to AB, and the division he oversaw for a few years would go on to become the franchise Overwatch and Call of Duty leagues. Now he serves on the board of 100 Thieves and is an investor and strategic advisor to Anbox, who we had on the show just a few weeks ago. But his main priority is his new company, Vindex, which he co-founded in 2019 and where he serves as the CEO. While I'll let Mike better explain what Vindex is, I can't say they raised $80 million, are led by the core group of people that brought esports to what it is today, and work as sort of a pocket knife, offering multiple solutions to the myriad of business problems that could crop up in esports, especially in esports live events. Last week, Vindex also joined the World Economic Forum's Global Innovators Community, the first company exclusively in video games to join the WEF. On this show, we're going to talk about Mike's long history in esports, how events from years past turned into the franchise leagues we see today, and the plans for Vindex going forward. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mitch. Nice to be here. Let's start with Vindex, but I'm going to have to ask you about MLG later. Can you give some context as to the type of infrastructure the company provides and some of the clients Vindex has worked with over the last year or two? Yeah, sure. Um, we have kind of a um, multi-staged approach, but the the whole foundational idea for Vindex came from um, obviously my, my and Sundance's um, entire history, I guess, um, with esports and the industry and how it's working. So the idea was, you know, we were um, toiling around in the pre Overwatch League days, pre Activision acquisition days um, with MLG, like the guys at ESL were in Europe and others were around the world in this arena where there was um, no sort of long term understanding of how the rights of any particular game would be managed. Um, so you could never, you know, we could never build MLG perpetually into the future around a single game or multiple games. So it's really difficult to do sort of one league um, or, or a perpetual league model. Um, when we went to Activision, the whole thesis there was if you had the capabilities and background and expertise and technology that MLG had, and you combined it with the ownership of a pretty big portfolio of great games that are all applicable to esports, then you could design sort of like the perfect business model, the perfect league system, and that could go on for forever. It could be a, a sort of forever plan. And so that was huge. And that's what eventually led to Overwatch League and then Call of Duty League. That helped really change the industry. And I think for people who have been around for more than five or six years, you definitely saw a significant shift uh, in attention on the industry outside players coming into the industry and lots of capital coming into the industry for the first time in the 2016-2017 time span because of that, right? Riot moved to a franchise system shortly after Overwatch was announced. All those things started to happen. Um, and that created this sort of upside down dynamic um, in the industry, which is a bit different than how traditional sports media businesses are built, which is usually 
starts with amateurs, starts to organize more and more, goes through scholastic systems, and over many, many decades, pro leagues like the NFL or uh, NBA are created. In the esports scenario, it was, it was that sort of wide open playground for a long time. The difference is, you know, traditional sports are public domain and video games are IP. So you can't just do whatever you want with a video game like you could with basketball or football or soccer. Um, so the, when it flipped in the franchise systems and the publisher controlled systems were, you know, kind of launched and met with immediate commercial success, it was pretty obvious to most of the business people in the industry, um, as well as, you know, C-suites of big video game publishers around the world, that this was going to be an important thing that they had to um, pay attention to and eventually would have to invest in and put resources behind. So that was the perspective that we had thinking about Vindex. And then I can tell you from, you know, helping to design the blueprint for the franchise league system at Activision and then running the um, commercial group that monetized the whole thing out of the gate, it was based almost exclusively on structure of the league and the ownership and all of that kind of the commitment to building it and the vision for it it was wildly successful um, in terms of monetization with sponsors and media rights and those kind of things and so we realized that that was going to perpetuate and that was going to make the industry sort of an investable thing not just a um, you know something that you as a publisher would devote a little bit of your marketing budget towards but a new business and that the dynamic for the industry was going to move to this very top-down controlled type of dynamic, which is different than the prior sort of organic stage of growth. Um, but that would be better because now you've sort of tackled what happens with the rights to games and you understand what the pro leagues are going to look like and how you can play in that, in that world. Um, so really what we said was, okay, if that's the case, publishers are all going to want to create these big leagues and really start to invest in esports more as a business and not not just a marketing channel, then they're going to need a lot of help. Um, and frankly, you know, the industry hasn't had the time to create the infrastructure required to support something as big as multi-billion dollar new kind of sports media business. It didn't have the infrastructure to um, do talent development and, and fan development. It didn't have the infrastructure to create um, the kind of data that you would need to be able to give to different constituents like advertisers and media platforms in order to monetize it effectively. Um, and most importantly, right out of the gate, you know, having, um, you know, help build the entire esports business inside of Activision Blizzard and having the whole group from MLG there to do that, realize that the other publishers didn't have that. And, and even within Activision, um, there's still a lot of need for outside help and support and technology and things like that. So. We kind of looked at that whole field and said there's a bunch of opportunities to supply um, technology and services and expertise to this industry in different facets, different areas that will help accelerate some of these things that would otherwise take, you know, a decade or two. And the first one was just publishers want to build big professional esports leagues or do, you know, or create sort of esports or gaming content programs that are global and scale. Um, they don't have those capabilities in house and there's no, you know, sort of enterprise class solutions provider externally that can help them do that on a global scale. And if you're thinking about it, and that was the experience of me, you know, running hundred person MLG for a decade and a half and then being, um, you know, a, a senior executive at a big public company with 10,000 employees like Activision. 
um, it's hard when you're in a big company to work with a lot of small companies. It's, it's very difficult to manage and it's just systems aren't set up that way. So if we could find the best of the best, put them all into one group and really bring a lot of investment in technology and innovation to the table, then we can really help um, the publishers design systems the right way, build the businesses the right way and ensure that they, what they were executing would meet with excitement from fans around the world. So that was kind of step one. Step that's, you know, we acquired NGE and, and launched eSports Engine to really solve for that problem. We're continuing to invest and build um, what I think is already the biggest solutions provider in the world uh, to video game publishers and content platforms. Um, the second focus was the, the amateur systems um, and realizing how consumed publishers would be with designing and launching um, you know, professional eSports leagues there's just not a lot of resources left over to focus on amateur. And the reality is, you know, when you think about amateur versus pro, it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg metaphor, right? The amateur system is probably 99% of the people and the pros are just the top 1%. So you're designing something to focus on the pro players and the fans, but how do you sort of give everybody else that experience? And, and the thing that's always fascinated me is that, you know, when I was a kid, I played baseball and basketball. And as a seven-year-old, when I started playing organized sports, you know, if, if I was better at t-ball as a seven-year-old, a coach would have had to sit down with me and been able to describe my entire career path from t-ball to Yankee Stadium. And every step along the way, and there would have been different infrastructure and coaching and different investments and all kinds of stuff that happened and, and lots of um, facilities and equipment along the way. And eventually, you know, you go through that whole process and you get to play for the Yankees. Um, if you think about esports, the process is, you know, you jump on your game on your PC at home, you put your headset on, you get on Discord, you talk to your friends and teammates, you start playing, and then you hope and pray that somebody sees your Twitch stream or your YouTube videos and drafts you onto a team. And then the next thing you know, you've gone from your bedroom to, um, you know, you're playing in a pro league. There really isn't much of an infrastructure to support any kind of other amateur development. Um, and that combined with, you know, the, the concept that um, a lot of people have, which I think is sort of false in, in the video game space, it, the idea that everything can kind of be solved with software and that the great things about video games is you can play them from anywhere and you don't need to be in a, in a place with people. That's kind of true in most cases. It's not really true in, you know, team-based multiplayer competitive especially not if you're taking it seriously and you want to grow, you got to be, you know, everybody can have a gaming PC at home and broadband internet and those kind of things, but you can't have that. You can't have a, you know, six person station or 12 stations to be able to play with your team and against another team. And that's the kind of infrastructure we are to be able to provide. So the second strategy there, or the second business unit that we've developed, we acquired the long gaming arenas um, from game, uh, the, Game is the retailer in the UK and Spain. And, you know, similar to GameStop that most of the fans here would, would know in the US. Um, but they launched this great, you know, kind of mix of land center and esports programming um, that's been very, very successful all across the UK. So we acquired that business and we'll start rolling it out next year across North America, really to, to bring the professional esports experience and connectivity to the global esports world to hometowns across the country uh, and eventually hopefully all around the world so that was kind of strategy two and then three was 
you know, having spent a lot of time in the past almost 20 years trying to sell advertising and, and um, push the value of esports media and the esports audience and fan base to the larger media world, um, the thing that's really always been missing in this space is more transparent third party verified data so they can really understand you know, who's watching, when they're watching, how they're watching, um, how they're interacting with brands, they're part of the content, all that kind of stuff. And that exists at, to a tremendous degree in the traditional media world and not really much at all. Um, even just in, in digital streaming, not just the esports space, but especially acute in the esports space, we feel it because our audience is so valuable and hard to reach through more traditional means, uh, but they're severely under monetized. And I think um, as the industry continues to grow, it's going to be really important that the investments that publishers and teams are making into professional esports and the content that comes out of that, um, it's going to have to, you know, be monetized more efficiently and better and at, at better scale and um, more comparatively to traditional sports and media businesses. So that's a third business that we're, we're developing, which is currently kind of in R&D mode inside of Index, but that's our, our third area of business. Fantastic. I think I have like 18 follow-up questions off of all of that. <laughs> uh, it's really, really interesting. So I do want to mention too, you mentioned how you're uh, investing in grassroots. Vindex has said they're going to invest $300 million over the next five years into gaming arenas around the country. And in so many cases, we've talked to some of the people who uh, we do a college esports show as well over at Esports Network. And we've talked a lot about scholastic esports, youth esports. And it's it's so important to have those opportunities for people to play games uh, in their communities it, and actually show parents and give parents the opportunity uh, to have their kids play in youth sports like we did when we grew up, at, but yeah. in esports. And that's going to really build the next generation of fans in, in a way that online gaming will always work. But but having those in-person experiences, those team experiences, is really going to push a lot of people into becoming esports fans because they're used to playing as part of a team and not just solo queuing. Yeah. Yeah, it's exactly right. I think, um, you know, I, I try to explain it to people who are not gamers. Like, imagine if you really loved basketball as a kid and you had a driveway and a basketball hoop. You know, that hoop is the same hoop that you would see at Madison Square Garden or the Staples Center. It's 10 feet high, it has a backboard. It's all NBA regulation and you can have a ball that's NBA regulation and all those kind of things. And you can watch lots of YouTube videos about how to develop ball handling skills and practice your shot and all that kind of stuff. And you can become the best, you know, free throw shooter or three point shooter in the world just in your driveway by practicing a lot. But the first time somebody sticks their hand in your face while you're trying to shoot or asks you to pass the ball to your teammate, you're going to lose it and not have any idea how to do that. And, and that's the same thing I've found over nearly 20 years in esports. It's, you know, we used to in the early days of MLG call those people uh, online heroes, right? people that would be just amazing in the bedroom playing online with anyone and then get to an MLG event where they're in a LAN environment with their teammates sitting next to them and their competitors sitting across the table and fans and lights and cameras, and they just absolutely fall apart. Um, and so you see that over and over again, and that's one of the things you can avoid. And if you look at, especially in Asia or, or South Korea, where PC banks are so popular, I think that's one of the main reasons that, um, generally speaking, Koreans for my entire career in esports have just been better at most games and better at esports because 
it's looks a lot like uh, you know baseball in Cuba and the Dominican Republic or uh, soccer in Brazil. If there's infrastructure and a support system and um, lots of resources for talent development, you'll, you'll get great players. And but beyond that, it's just fun, you know. And and look, I grew up playing video games with my friends in the '80s and '90s, and um, it was always a hell of a lot more fun if you could go over somebody's house and you know. In those cases, for me, it was a Nintendo box. You could bring your Nintendo to your friend's house and everybody could play together. That was more fun than just playing by yourself. Oh, always. So the GoldenEye arguments are just like <laughs> the best. That's, that's what my brain always comes to, is the, is the arguments or the, the old school Halo arguments, uh, the split screen. You watch my screen. It's like, that's, that's always how I return to, to gaming. And I still think about gaming. It's come so far over the last two decades, of course, but that's really the core of it. Making sure kids have those in-person experiences, I think is really important to, to building those core memories and making sure they're gamers for their entire lives, as I plan to be, I'm sure you plan to be, and so many others. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the World Economic Forum. Uh, and I know Vindex is participating in the Shaping the Future of Media, Entertainment, and Sport, and you kind of alluded to this at the end of your last answer. And I'm curious, you know, as we've talked about the overlap of the sports world and esports, especially with a ton of sports money pushing into esports in the 2016-2017 range, how do you see those two worlds, the traditional sports world and the esports world, uh, evolving over the next decade, especially in their relation to each other? Well, I think that they'll, um, there's going to be a lot of crossover. So one of the things that, you know, esports has done very well from inception is... Um, you know, largely because it, it wasn't well understood by television people, but also because the audience was just never a native television. You know, we're kind of, esports took off at the same time that the post television generation was coming of age. So, you know, through, look back in 2006, we did the first major television deal for esports and we put the pro circuit on USA Network here in the US which at the time was the biggest cable network in the world. And we were following WWE Raw, which was the biggest thing on cable at the time. That was a big deal because nobody in the television executive ranks understood anything about what we were doing except for a small number of people. Um, but the reality was, you know, this is this type of content has always been native to a generation of people that grew up with streaming and um, digital video and not television, cable and broadcast. And so what's happening in the traditional sports world is in order to keep that younger audience, in order to sort of like stay relevant to the generational wave that's coming, the traditional sports world is trying to figure out how to continue to serve their older core audience who is stuck with television and cable probably for the rest of their lives. And also the significant dollars that come from cable, you know, exclusivity on broadcasting cable um, and, and, making sure that they're not losing a whole next generation and effectively, you know, getting outmoded over time, just sort of losing an entire audience of new fans. And so that's difficult. They're trying to, over many decades, they're trying to expertly navigate a digital transition. And it's not easy to do because all of the money is still in television. Um, and, you know, frankly, executives at traditional sports leagues and even the, the big traditional um, media companies don't really understand digital very well. They certainly don't understand the audience. So a lot of them are looking to esports for guidance on how to better understand 
how the digital world works and how um, a whole new generation of uh, viewers are creating sort of an expectation of how content is delivered in an interact, you know, in over the internet, which is inherently an interactive platform, meaning you could you could do a lot more than just send a linear video signal. Um, so all these things are very challenging to traditional sports, and they're very uh, very much looking to esports for as as sort of a guidebook um, and watching how the esports world develops uh, for insights into their own businesses. And then I think um, you know I, I've created a career out of just copying the best parts of traditional sports and, and media businesses and applying them to the esports paradigm. Right. And so that kind of crossover has been happening from a very early stage. Um, and so I think that they will, those two things will merge closer and closer together because at the end of the day, the consumer is going to become the same person. Um, but you know, where we, us kind of gamer guys and esports digital experts sort of laugh at the old people in the sports media world. Um, they kind of look at us and say, how do you guys do all this stuff for almost no money? And that's, <laughs> that's the kind of crossover. Um, because, you know, on a, on a fan by fan basis, esports generates, you know, about four to, I think four to 8% of what a, you know, football or soccer or even hockey tan generates for those sports media businesses. So, um, that's the flip. The traditional guys need to understand digital and the esports world needs to understand how to make money. Yes, we absolutely do. Those uh, cable TV checks that uh, make up like half of the traditional sports world's revenue uh, are just so forward to even think about the amount of money that just gets given to a team uh, for the cable deal each year is just a ludicrous amount of money for esports, but there is definitely some level of uh, esports needs to figure out how to monetize their fans. You know, esports competitions probably can't be free to watch forever. And I've seen some fans getting more and more. I think fans are generally pretty open to brands and sponsorships in esports, a lot more so than in traditional sports. But I've yeah. noticed, especially during Worlds, I saw a lot more comments on like our League of Legends where people were like, oh, there's brands here. I'm like, you guys are still getting this for free. Uh, so you're going to have to expect those publishers to hit all the Bud Light aces to get all the MasterCard brand banners in the game, because as long as you guys don't pay to consume this content, that's going to keep happening. And I think esports sure. need to need to accept that that's a, just a fact. Uh, so you also mentioned, you know, we talked about how the sports world, uh, you know, esports is growing and sports world's looking to it. We've also seen a lot of really uh, important people in the sports world jump over to esports recently. You see people like Tony Batiti leave a junior commissioner role at the MLB to join Activision. We have Johanna Ferries now leading the way on both the Call of Duty and Overwatch leagues as commissioner or as head of leagues, I believe is her new title, uh, after spending about a decade at the NFL league offices before that. I've known there's a lot of people all around esports. In fact, it was me coming out of school. I was studying sports broadcasting and always was a fan of esports. Uh, at about that 2016, 2017 range, I was like, oh, esports is going nuclear. I need to go get on board with this because I remember watching Halo, but I always wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And, and so I'm curious if you could instill one lesson into every person who is moving from a sports background to an esports one, what would that lesson be? I would say 
you're going to understand the fundamentals of how the business should work. What you're not going to understand is the fan base and the nuances of the individual cultures that each community around different themes or different genres has. And so I, you know, what I usually tell people uh, like Johanna and, and Tony is spend time getting to understand all of the individual nuances of the, the fan base of the audience um, and the player base and kind of dig in on that. But the reality is, you know, people that come from the sports world, the traditional sports world, pretty much understand 70, 80% of the esports world pretty quickly. Um, and in fact, you know, to, to jump ahead to, I think what you might start asking me next, like very early on at, at MLG, when Sundays and I were starting the business, uh, we got a tremendous amount of traction and immediate understanding from people that we talked to at places like ESPN and CBS sports and the video game industry. People that we talked to had no idea what we were talking about or why we were bothering to try to do this. Um, so our first, you know, advisory board member at MLG back in like 2004, I think was Neil Pilsen, who, uh, was the president of, of CBS sports for 20 years, um, who had never played a video game in his life, but immediately understood, you know, how to broadcast competition and how to create narratives and how to monetize an audience. Um, and then, you know, more recently from my first day at Activision until today, um, Steve Bornstein, who was the CEO of ESPN and created the NFL network. You know, Steve effectively created the ESPN that you know today, he invented Sports Center. Right? It's, um, he's not a gamer. His kids are, but he's not a gamer, but he understands what we're doing intimately and, and was incredibly helpful um, for me and, and everybody in Activision sort of understanding all of the experience that's come from decades and decades of developing sports media businesses and how that can inform what we're doing in the esports world. It's such a natural transition for being a sports fan because on the core level, all the things that attract somebody to being a fan of sports also exist in esports. The teamwork, uh, the practice, the the drive, the competition, it all uh, works in esports. And I it was one of the main reasons why I got into esports because I realized that a lot of my friends didn't see the potential for it and they didn't see where this was going and they didn't understand it. And I was like, well, I see that this is just a very similar to sports. I see all the overlaps with the sporting world. I feel like there's going to be a really interesting future as somebody who understands both sports and esports. And I'm curious, you know, as people who are getting uh, into esports, you sort of mentioned how people need to understand the roots and really the the people that have been here before. Why do you think? that is so important like what what areas do you think people miss as they get involved in esports they invest a lot in esports you know i'm not going to name any any call outs but we've seen uh sub teams do the investment in the overwatch or call of duty leagues really well and sub teams not do it so well uh and i'm curious you know what can be learned from understanding the roots of the business as you're an esports investor especially if you're one of these sports owners who now wants to run an esports team I, so I think that most of the uh, investors and operators that have come into esports from owning 
and operating um, traditional sports teams, you know, have a pretty good perspective across the board on how to operate uh, esports teams in in kind of franchised esports leagues, at least. And I think you know one of the really powerful parts of the Activision Blizzard model is the the market based approach, which means that you as an owner can focus on a single market where you don't have competition from another team in that market. You can really focus on building a, a strong identity with that city uh, or that market that, that generates local pride. And, and so, you know, sports teams owners understand that really, really well. And most of them had, you know, if they, if they acquired franchise teams from esports leagues in the city that they had a traditional sports team, uh, you can leverage that infrastructure. You can leverage all the relationships you have with local media and all that kind of stuff. And you can kind of really uh, hit the ground running. So I think most of the groups that have approached that way, um, you know, one have been a little bit more successful out of the gate, but two probably also had a, a longer horizon in their idea of the investment. And, and probably also had a better understanding of what the operating costs would be. So, you know, look, I think, I think that you're going to see, you know, if we could, if we could go three, four five years into the future and look back, I think what most people will say at that time is, you know, wow, right. You know, out of the gate pretty quickly, um, team franchises in these, you know, better run esports leagues were able to build real businesses much more quickly than you would. Um, in traditional sports leagues, you know, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people maybe in the esports world don't understand is that most professional sports team franchises have not been profitable until very, very recently in their history when media rights deals shot through the roof, you know, in the late nineties and early two thousands, and then even much more recently. And, and prior to that, there are pretty small businesses that struggle to stay afloat. Um, even if you look at MLS, which is the more most recent, I think, of all traditional sports leagues that have launched in North America. I don't think any of those teams got to cash flow positive for a decade. So, you know, the idea that after two years, teams aren't profitable in, in a league like the Overwatch League, I don't know that anybody who went into this with a good understanding would have thought that would have been the case from the beginning. And, and I think that some of them will be very, very successful, even just financially beyond what they're doing, beyond just the value that they're building and the underlying asset. Absolutely. It's really easy to romanticize the history of sports and be like, oh, Magic and Larry. But you don't think back to those days and realize that some of those NBA finals were tape delayed and that there was just a, yeah. you know, that it's not, we think about it, we're like, well, Magic, one of the best players of all time. But at the time, those teams weren't making money. They were, there was not yeah. nearly the same uh, level of desire to watch those games as we see today. And now we think about the NBA, we think about this massive property, which it is, and uh, it's just quite different. So I yeah. need to let you go, but I want to ask you one other top story of this week, recording this on Thursday uh, the 12th, was Hex getting the Optic brand back. So Hector Rodriguez, the longtime CEO of Optic Gaming, uh, getting the brand back from the Immortals Gaming Club and changing the Chicago Huntsman uh, with NRG as well to Chicago Optic. And so I'm curious, you know, as esports is growing, a ton of new teams are being created, especially in the franchise leagues. 
What do you think are the pros of keeping longstanding brand names like Optic or Phase attached to teams? And then on the flip side, what are the pros of diversifying? Like we've seen it have success for the Dallas Empire or San Francisco Shock, to give a few examples. I'd like to start with the pros of keeping esports organizations' names in franchise leagues. So Optic, Phase, Thieves, uh, those kind of teams. What are the pros on that side and then on the flip side after? Um, you know, it's a tough question. And I think that um, it's almost down to the individual team, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's really tough to say, you know, a blanket statement, this is either good or bad. I just, just to comment on Hector in particular, you know, Hector's a, a friend and, you know, somebody that ha was a early MLG supporter, kind of grew up in our system, um, has gone on to great success and who I respect and, you know, love as a friend and, and he's incredibly proud of the persistence and perseverance he's had. And I think he's going to be wildly successful getting the optic brand back. And I know how important it is to him personally and how passionate he is about it. And I think, you know, outside of esports, if you're an entrepreneur that's that passionate about something you've created, that you spend that much time and effort trying to get it back and rebuild something, there's nothing that's going to stop him. It's, you know, Hector's uncorrelated to the success or failure of esports as an industry, he's going to be successful. But, you know, how that applies to the overall system, you know, I can tell you when we were talking about this very issue at the pre-launch design phase of the Overwatch League, you know, there was, there was a lot of debate about this, as you might imagine, because some people inside the company thought it would be more valuable for the league to be able to work with long established brand name teams. Um, and that would add a lot of value to the in legitimacy in a way to the league. And then others said like, okay, but that's, you know, then all these different, it, it makes the entire monetization process so much more complex. It makes the individual franchises potentially worth less because then you're saying it's, it's, you know, some values associated with the brand, some with the franchise rights, it's very difficult to figure out. So yeah, I'm not gonna say it was an easy decision, but there was a clear business case for why at the start of the Overwatch League, it made sense um, to, you know, require everybody to create a new brand. Um, I think as the industry evolves, that may or may not get more or less important. I think the hard part is now in these sort of intermediary years where things are getting figured out, um, it can create a, uh, an uneven playing field and some inequity for existing teams that have created multiple brands and then those that don't have to, or can kind of create associated brands. So. That's tough, and honestly, it's it's. I don't really believe it's anyone's fault. It's it's this thing is growing and moving very quickly, and there's no perfect answer for a lot of these business decisions you have to make. You have to just make a decision, see how things progress, and then I think the good thing that I can say is largely across the entire industry, people are trying to make the right decisions for the whole system and not just for their own from their own perspective. And I think everybody who's a significant player in that world, team owners leagues and publishers um, all have the right intention, which is to grow the size of the pie, not necessarily sort of fight with each other over scraps. And so I think that that's generally a good thing. And I think when you see people like Tony Petiti coming in from Major League Baseball, he kind of brings that perspective that the teams are incredibly important to any league and we got to really create value for everybody. Um, and I think, you know, in a very short time, Tony in particular has had an incredibly positive impact on both the Overwatch League and the, uh, the Call of Duty League. And I think that I think that kind of perspective and the experience and gravitas that he brings to that system is really important. 
So look, I, nobody makes, you know, is a hundred percent right all the time. And it's and the thing I can tell you after almost 20 years in esports is whatever you don't like about esports today, just stick around because it'll probably change next week. Um, it's a very, <laughs> very dynamic environment and, uh, everybody's trying to react and make the best decisions at the time when they have to make those decisions. And inevitably, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, sports and therefore esports are like politics. Like everybody has a side and some deeply held convictions and you want to fight against anything that isn't that. Um, and that's good. That's representative of how passionate the fan base is and the players are and everybody is about this, this world. So I generally think, you know, the, the good thing I can say is again, after nearly 20 years, including all of the new people that have come into this space, you don't have many bad actors in this space. And, and generally speaking, everybody is trying to figure out, you know, how to make the whole space successful. And there's a real focus on just making sure that the output that the product is, you know, a, a massively overwhelmingly, you know, successful and epic experience for the fans. And I think as an industry, as long as we sort of keep an eye on that, that at the end of the day, we're all here to entertain people and make sure everyone's being entertained and having fun and creating passionate fan bases and things like that, then, then everyone will be successful. But every step along the way, um, you know, people are doing a very good job at making very good decisions for the, based on the information that they have and at the time they have to make decisions. So I think largely speaking, um, this whole world will be very successful because of that. And it's, it's indicative, like you mentioned earlier, people like Tony and Johanna who are attracted from incredibly, you know, successful careers within incredibly successful sports organizations. Um, the fact that esports can attract people like that to this world is indicative of how successful it is and how successful it will. Absolutely. It is uh, certainly dynamic. Dynamic doesn't even say the half of it. Constantly changing and a perfect sports property set up for a constantly changing world, which we find to be very much so true, especially this year. Uh, esports has shown its ability to be flexible, to adapt to tough situations, to complicated situations like we've seen during this pandemic. 40 minutes in, I think this is the longest I've gone in a in a show without mentioning the pandemic since uh, since March. So that, that's a new record. That's exciting. Uh, that's great. Mike, thank you so much for joining the show. It was great talking to you. I'm glad to have you on. I want to give you one more chance uh, to plug Vindex, plug any of the other things you're working on, what you want people looking out for, watching or following. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Mitch. And, um, you know, one thing I would say is we're always hiring at Vindex, at, at Esports Engine, uh, at Belong. Um, definitely stay tuned for future announcements about Belong, especially if you live in North America, we'll be coming to a neighborhood near you. Um, and so, so pay attention to that. And we're excited about the rollout next year. And thanks for having me, Mitch. I can't wait till I can visit Arena. Solo queuing Rocket League is driving me up a wall these days. So I'm excited <laughs> to go to an arena and play with some people in real life where they can't flame me after I miss a ball. So that's uh, I'm <laughs> excited for that future. This was Mike Sepso, one of the true esports pioneers. I hope you all enjoyed this show. I will have another episode for you coming on Monday. Have a great weekend.